بسم الله الرحمن الرحيم الحمد لله رب العالمين والآقبة للمتقين والجنة للموحدين ولا عدوان إلا على الظالمين والصلاة والسلام على أشرف الخلق والمرسلين سيدنا وحبيبنا وشفيعنا وقدوتنا وقرة عيننا ونور قلوبنا وسندنا ومولانا محمد صلى الله تعالى عليه وعلى آله وصحبه وسلم تسليما كثيرا كثيرا أما بعد all praise belongs to Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala in the choices of blessings upon our master Sayyidina Muhammad sallallahu ta'ala alayhi wa sallam. We thank Allah for granting us another day. And it's so important that a believer constantly be, he constantly be mindful over the fact that every moment of his existence, Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala is favoring him. Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala is al-mannan, the one who is constantly showering blessings upon his servants. And when we woke up this morning, it was a favor from Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. When Allah allowed us to take some rest and take some sleep, it was a favor from Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. There are people that suffer from insomnia and they just can't sleep. You know, and they, they would become ill and they would become sick. And they would many a times go crazy because they can't get sleep. And Allah has given us sleep and that's a favor from Him subhanahu wa ta'ala. And when He gave us the opportunity to stand up for another morning, it's a favor from Him. And when he brought us to the masjid, it's a favor from him. And when he granted us good health, it was a favor from him. And when he granted us strength to move our bodies, it was a favor from him. There are people who just don't have energy within their muscles. They just can't move. Because Allah has removed that energy from their muscles. So all of these are favors and a believer is one who is constantly turning and thanking his Lord subhanahu wa ta'ala. So we thank Allah for this great favor, for this bounty for allowing us to pray our Fajr in Jama'ah, for allowing us to recite sections of the Qur'an, Surah Yasin in particular, for allowing us to recite the awrad and the Adhkar, the prophetic morning and evening Adhkar, and then for gathering us in a masjid to be part of a class of knowledge. And we continue this morning with a reading from the text Mukhtasar Abi Shuja, uh, which has been translated to the ultimate conspectus. We'll be draw close to Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala by studying the law of Allah. And we commenced with a reading of Kitab al-Tahara, which is the chapter of cleanliness or purity. And uh, we started speaking of water. And I wanted to take some more time out again this morning to continue our discussion on water as we had to rush through parts of it last week. فَأَكُولُ وَبِاللَّهِ التَّوْفِيقِ So we say in the name of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala, and I actually need a copy of the book if somebody uh, will be so kind. Jazakallah So our author, he said that there are four categories of water. He said the first is ثُمَّ الْمِيَاهُ عَلَىٰ أَرْبَعَةِ أَقْسَامٍ طَاهِرٌ مُطَاهِرٌ غَيْرُ مَكْرُوهٍ وَهُوَ الْمَاءُ الْمُطْلَقِ He said the first category is water which is intrinsically pure in itself it's pure mutahir it has the ability to purify besides it so i don't recall to what extent we mentioned or discussed this particular uh, category of water but it's water in its original state water that has no najasa in it water that has no change to it uh, we spoke about water in its original state and we spoke about Rainwater, we spoke about wells, we spoke about springs, and that's essentially what the first category is. And uh, we quoted the verse where Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala said, 
Tahura we sent down to you from the heavens, pure water. The other hadith which establishes the purity of, of general water, water that has no restrictions, is the hadith of the Arabi. Did I quote that hadith last week? When a Bedouin came and urinated in the masjid. Did I quote it last week? No. So it's a, another hadith which establishes the fact that water has the power to purify. Because a Bedouin once walked into the masjid of Rasul and urinated. Right? And when he urinated in the masjid, the companions, radiallahu ta'ala, anhum, they stood up and they wanted to stop him because how can you urinate in the masjid? And Rasul, sallallahu alayhi wa sallam, stopped him. He said, leave him and let him urinate finish. Do not disturb a man while urinating. So when he was done urinating, the Prophet, sallallahu alayhi wa sallam, instructed the companions and he said to them that what you should do now is get a bucket of water and throw it over his urine. That's another tradition where the Prophet وسلم, is teaching us that water has the power to, to remove najasa, to purify. And then the Prophet وسلم, called the Bedouin one side. And this Bedouin, he, he spoke about this day and he said that by Allah, I've never ever seen a better teacher than Muhammad. The day when I urinated in the masjid, when other companions stood up to shout at me and reprimand me and scold me, the Prophet said to them, leave him. And he allowed me to urinate finish. And then the Prophet called me one side and he spoke to me with kind, gentle words. And he smiled at me and he said that a masjid is a place of worship. And it's not suitable for one to relieve himself within a masjid. A masjid must be kept clean and so forth and so on. And the Prophet explained to him the etiquette of the masjid beautifully. So much that he said, I've never seen a better teacher than him, sallallahu alayhi wa sallam. And this Bedouin, when he left the masjid, he raised his hands and he prayed. So he said, Allahumma arhamni wa Muhammadan. Oh Allah, have mercy upon me and Muhammad. Wala tarhamma'ana ahadan and don't have mercy on anyone else besides us. <laughs> so the Prophet, laughed. <laughs> and the Prophet, sallallahu told him, you're trying to restrict something which is, which cannot be restricted. Allah's Rahmah is vast and it can't be restricted to two people. And the greatest manifestation of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala's Rahmah is His Prophet Muhammad sallallahu alayhi wa sallam regarding whom Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala said, وَمَا أَرْسَلْنَاكَ We have not sent you but as a mercy unto mankind. So that's the first category, Tahirun Mutahir. The second category we mentioned was Tahirun, Mutahirun, Makruhun, Isti'amalu. Water which is intrinsically pure, it has the ability to purify, but the usage of it is considered makruh. And we spoke about sun heated water, and we said that it has to be in very uh, cities where the degrees are very high. It has to be in a vessel that, has, that, has, uh, that is plated with a metal other than gold and silver, and that's on account of a chemical reaction that would take place. However, we also discovered that the Latter-day Shafi'i said that it's not makruh even to use such water, even though it doesn't really um, affect us in a society such as ours because what the sun does not reach such high degrees in, in, in southern Africa. Um, the third category, and this is actually the category that I wanted to spend some time on this morning and develop a better understanding around it, the idea of water which is pure in itself 
but does not have the power to purify besides it. And the first example we made was water that changes. Right? What's that? Or tea or coffee for that matter. Right? So there's a curt change in it. example is that if I have water, if I throw syrup into it, it changes into juice. That's a physical change that you and I can witness. Sometimes, what if I was to add something that could potentially change water but it cannot be seen? So that's not a problem. So if I have a 5 liter jug, where I once upon a time had orange juice in, and I poured out all the juice and there's a few triplets remaining at the bottom of this jug, or this container, and then I fill it with water, is that water mixed with something else? Yes. But it's so little that it has no impact on the water whatsoever. So that's not changed water. That water is per perfectly fine to use for wudu, for the removal of hadath and abstract impurity, and for the removal of najasa, physical impurity. Khair. So the change, there has to be a change either in it, a physical change in the color of water, there has to be a physical change in the smell of water, or there has to be a physical change in the taste of water. The problem you have is sometimes water may be mixed with such a substance that has no color, has no smell, has no taste, but is not water. So it's still water being mixed with something else. So when do we know whether that is still considered water or not? So the famous example they would make is if I was to take something like rose water. Now rose water has a distinct smell and rose water has a distinct taste but if it stands long enough then rose water loses its smell it loses its taste but it's not water <laughs> right everyone following me if i was to take rose water and start throwing it into a bucket i have a five liter can of water and someone pours ro rose water into it let's say he assumed it was normal water and he added to it so now uh, is that water pure for me to use, yes or no? In other words, is it changed water or not? Ma'un mutaghayyirun. So they say you have to do an estimation. So I need it to be focused. When you're doing an estimation, then your estimation could either be what they would call khafif, using something which is very uh, light in terms of its color, taste or smell, or something which is moderate, moderate, wasat, or something which is ghalid, heavy. And what I mean by light, moderate, and heavy is that if I was to take something such as um, um, Allahumma salli ala Sayyidina Muhammad wa ala Sayyidina Muhammad wa something that's color is very light and wouldn't immediately cause change in water. I'm thinking of an example. That's khafif. Uh, probably come to an example later, but I'll use an example for the middle category. If I was to have a jug of water and I take some orange juice and I throw it, then in terms of the color of orange juice, uh, the potential impact it could have on water is going to be moderate. But if I was to take ink, then the potential impact it has on water is strong. 
because ink changes water immediately. So, in terms of in terms of color, there's three possible things that could change water: something which is going to be very light, something which is moderate, and something which is heavy. When it comes to when it comes to smell, then there's going to be three things that could potentially change the smell of water: light, moderate, and heavy. So, if I was to add um, orange juice into water, will the smell taste a little bit? The smell of orange juice is going to be very light, and therefore the effect that it would have on water in terms of its smell is going to be khafif, light. If I was to take um, something that has more smell, stronger smell, but moderate in its smell, everyone is just looking at me, no one wants to help me out here. <laughs> then, so, um, a substance which is moderate in its smell, and I was to add that to water, then that would be moderate. I, I'm just lacking an example. Ginger or garlic. Ginger or garlic. Uh, ginger or garlic is going to have a moderate impact on water in terms of the change of its smell. But then I have perfume. I go fetch one of, uh, I go fetch a bottle of oud, and I start throwing that into water. So a small amount of that, as ghali, that's heavy, a small amount of it is going to change the smell of water. And the same applies to, we said color, we said smell, same applies to taste, right? There are going to be three categories, khafif, moderate, with light, moderate and heavy. So when it comes to changing water with a pure substance, so I took these, I took uh, uh, rose water that lost its smell and lost its taste. And I'm taking that rose water and I'm adding it to water. I want to know the water that I had, this five liter jug, when I added a rose water to it, is it changed water, yes or no? So I have to do an estimation. When I do an estimation, I need to assume that how much rose water did I use? So now for, 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 for the sake of my example, I had a 5 liter jug and I took 250 mils of rose water that has no color and has no taste. So, and I threw that rose water into a 5 liter jug. So now what estimation means is I need to take something which is moderate. So I'm going to assume in terms of the taste of that rose water, if it was orange juice, 250 mils of orange juice, in this liter, 5 liter jug that I have, would it have changed the taste, yes or no? The answer is not important. The question is, would it? If it changes, then it means it's changed water and I cannot use it. If it doesn't change, then it means it's still not changed water and I can use the water for purification. You understand that? Then I take the same amount, 250 mils, and I assume if it was something which was moderate in its smell, would it have changed the smell of this water, yes or no? And then again, at same 250 mils, I assume if it was something which is moderate in its taste, would it have changed the taste of this water, yes or no? So even I, using this, this moderate category over here, the wasat, and I say that that water, had it been, had it been, had it been, and the smell would not have changed, and the taste would not have changed, and the color would not have changed, then the water remains pure. It's not changed water. But in, on any level, if I was to assume that that 250 mils of a moderate smelling substance would have changed the water, or moderate tasting would have changed the water, or moderate in its uh, color would have changed the water, 
then the water is considered to be impure. Not impure, but changed. So it's pure in itself, but it doesn't have the ability to purify any longer. Everyone sees that. That's all in this category, something which is intrinsically pure, but does not, does not have the ability to purify. The, another example of this category is going to be used water. And when we speak about used water, we're speaking about water which was used in, in the removal of hadar. Can it be water which was used for the removal of najasa? Remember, water could either be used to remove hadath, which is an abstract impurity, minor and major impurity, that which requires wudu, and that which requires ghusl. And then water can also be used to remove physical impurity. If water was used to remove physical impurity, will it fall in this category? No. Why not? Because it came in contact with physical najasa. Then the water becomes najis water. So that's in itself impure. We're speaking about a category where the water is pure, it just does not have the ability to purify. purify. So it's water, when we speak about used water, it's water specifically used in hudu and water specifically used in a ghusl. And of course we're going to assume now, after that water was used in my hudu or in my ghusl, there is now, uh, I, uh, I, I did not use shampoo or soap or any chemicals or no najasas in the water. So that water is, if it was to be collected, I just made a do with it. It's still clean, the color did not change, the smell did not change, the taste did not change. So it's pure. Can it be used to purify again? No. That's what ma mustamani is used water. It cannot be used to purify again. And there's a number of interesting discussions around this. First of all, the first question is, how do we know the water is still pure? How do we know the water is still pure? One of the famous traditions in this regard is the Messenger Muhammad sallallahu alayhi wa sallam. In the Sahih narrations, um, a female companion whose name is my mind, she brought her nephew to the Messenger Muhammad sallallahu alayhi wa sallam and he was ill. And he narrated the hadith. He said, my aunt took me to the home of Rasul sallallahu alayhi wa sallam, which sketches a reality to us. And that reality is that... Uh, the, the, the attitude of the companions radiallahu ta'ala anhum when anyone who take ill the first stop is the messenger Muhammad sallallahu alayhi wa sallam so he said that I was ill and my aunt took me to the home of the prophet sallallahu alayhi wa sallam and she said ya rasulallah my nephew is ill so the prophet sallallahu alayhi wa sallam performed hudu and the water that with which he performed hudu was collected in a vessel of some kind and then the Prophet wasallam told me to drink from the water that he used in his hudu. So the first thing is that if water which was used for the removal of hadath was not pure, then the Prophet would not have told him to drink it. But the Prophet told him to drink it. And he said, I drank the water and I was cured. And then he said, Rasul then placed his hand on my head and he made dua for shifa, that Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala should grant me shifa. And he said that uh, he became an old man and his hair went grey, but that area where the Prophet ﷺ placed his blessed hand remained black. Allahumma salli ala Sayyidina Muhammad wa ala Sayyidina Muhammad wa ashabi wa Now there's two questions. Go for it. Sorry? 
What was your question, Rajni? <laughs> okay, so I'm going to go to your question. I mean, I'm going to move on to your question first. So, um, the thing was with with sea uh, water is that there's just such large volume of water, right? And uh, the Prophet Muhammad was aware of animals that would potentially live in water. Anyway, mind animals, sea animals. Sometimes land animals would also relieve themselves within water, but the volume of water is just so high that uh, there is no real change. If you were to come to a section of seawater where there is change in its color or there was um, um, a, an unnatural change in color, so let's assume they're polluting this, some oil spilled over here or they dumped some chemicals or they, whatever the case may be into a section and that area of the beach has the water that has changed its color on account of a foreign substance that was thrown into it, then you can't use it. But if you step further away where the water color is again normal, and the water color is uh, normal and the taste and everything else is more normal, then that water could be used. So the idea is just that there's such a mass volume that change doesn't really occur to the water. And then also the ocean has an amazing system of purifying itself all the time. You know, so it gets rid of filth and uh, all, 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 all such, uh, uh, all such filth now. The one on the wudu of Rasul sallallahu alaihi visit again at another time, inshallah. So I want to come back to our discussion on used water, right? When exactly is that water considered to be used? You know, our, our jurist, there's a number of discussions I have here which are very interesting. I'm just trying to recall some of them. I think the first one I'd like to discuss is that if a, if a person is standing in a bath, if you're standing in a bath of water and you're performing hudu, then how would you perform hudu? Because if I was to take a handful of water, while I'm standing in a bath, and then I start washing my face with an intention of the removal of hadath, then what would happen to the rest of the water? Hey? If your feet in the bath. Or let's say you're standing in a bath, a better example is you're standing in a bath and you're uh, performing a ghusl, a fard ghusl, where you're removing hadath from your entire body. So you're standing knee deep in water, and that water is under two kulas, less than 200 liters. And then you start making an intention to remove yourself from a major state of impurity. So what would happen to the, to the water? All water just becomes used. So I can't use, the rema I can't use that water to wash the balance of my body. Because it's already used. Understand that? So what would the solution be if you have a bath of water? Eh? Stand outside. Who said that now? Khair. <laughs> Standing outside is a one option. <laughs> so you wash yourself separately. But here you want to wash yourself in the bath. So what should you do? Eh? What, do you, what are you going to do with the bucket? 
throw it over, you're not going to get your whole body, and then you're going to, all the water is still going to be considered used. <laughs> then you don't have water. So the solution would be if you submerge your entire body underwater. So now your entire body is underwater, and now you make the intention of the removal of hadath, of a fard ghusl. Then what would happen? Your entire body becomes pure, and then the water will be used. But that's not the problem right now because already you're out of a state of merging purity. Do you understand that? So I was standing knee deep in the water, and then I made the intention from my knees to my feet will become pure, but the water now becomes mustamal and I don't have water to use. But if I submerge my entire body, and now I make the intention so that hadath is removed from my entire body, and my ghusl is complete. Can you appreciate that? Do you understand that? <laughs> no, I see the bath, I didn't say a bucket. <laughs> Okay, that's the one thing. Uh, somebody asked me the question about the pool last week. I'm just trying to recall some discussions. And if you have any questions related to water, you know, ideally we don't want to revisit these discussions later. So if you have any questions, now is the time to actually ask it. So one of the things is pool water. Can you perform a ghusl in a pool? Or can you make wudu in a pool? Uh, yeah, yes. Hey. So look at pool water and ask yourself, is there change in the color, smell, or taste of pool water, yes or no? <coughs> hey? The taste, what's the taste? Tastes like chemicals. Many a times, it smells like chemicals. What's it now, taste, smell, eh? Okay, the color sometimes, many a times is good. The chemicals are there to make sure the color is right. <laughs> so that is water. That has been changed. The taste has changed. The smell has changed. So can it be used? No, it falls under the category of changed water. So it's pure in itself. Fine, you can swim in it. But can you use it for purification? No, you can't. Because of the chemicals. What if you don't have a chemical pool? If you don't, you either have a, a chlorine. Okay, all pools would be chlorine essentially. But you either have a chemical pool or a salt water pool. So can you make wudu or ghusl in a salt water pool? What changes? The taste. Now if the taste changes with salt, is it problematic, yes or no? Uh? Sea water is salt. But does it mean it's fine when you added the salt to the water? If your pool water was sea water, <laughs> okay. Now I'll entertain that. Yeah, if you can show me a pool, a pool that is actually salted. <laughs> so will it be fine, yes or no? It's actually a very interesting discussion. Our jurors, our jurors, they didn't discuss pools, right? Because in the agrarian world, I don't. I don't think you, f you found there was natural pools, but not these type of manufactured, man-made pools. So um, our jurors, they speak of, they speak about milh barri and milh bahari. So you have, you, have, you have land salt and you have sea salt. And if you mix land salt into water, 
then the water is considered changed and cannot be used for purifying. But if you mix sea salt into water, then it's merely taking water from a state of being having uh, no taste to being similar to sea water. And sea water is already, we already stated that sea water is pure and purified. So if you have a salt water pool and you add land salt to that pool, then it cannot be used. But if you have a salt water pool and you add it, sea salt to the pool, then it will be fine. So what does the pool shops give you? Sea salt or land salt? Eh? What are you saying? You guys don't have pools, right? Well, ask my Abhi there at the back to tell you. The pool shops give you sea salt. Right? So the salt that's added to the water. Well, I don't know if it's all the case, but the salt that my Abhi used to buy for the pool at home, that was sea salt. So even though there was a change in the taste of uh, the pool of my father's place, one could still perform wudu and ghusl therein. Because there's only change in the taste, and the taste comes about on account of a sea salt, which is not problematic. Can you appreciate that? So we were speaking about used water. There's a nice discussion that comes up. When exactly is that water considered to be used? Because if I was to take a handful of water and I start washing my arm, with that same water, if I wash this part of my arm, is the water considered used and therefore it cannot be used to wash the balance of my arm? You understand the question? Will it be considered used, yes or no? Khair, so what's, what's that got to do with the... And if you use only one section, it's not. That doesn't make sense. Your, your intention is there, your intention is to remove hada, but you still only reached here and you made the intention to remove... But the water is there, so is it used or not? I cannot wash the rest of your arm. So the rule is that as long as the water is on that particular limb of hudu, then it's only considered used once it leaves that limb. So once that water departs from your limb, then it's considered used. But while it's still on the limb, it's not used. You understand that? No. No, the water that comes with the psalm, now it's used, so it can't be used to remove the impurity, the hadath on the other arm. There's a question one of the students once upon a time asked me. You know, once you start applying your mind to water, it can become very, you know, become, become very technical. So he says that the problem he has is that he would, um, this is the problem he essentially has. He says he washed his hands. So the water on his hands is as used, supposed to be used. Now he opens up the tap and he adds more water to his hands. So is the fresh water coming to his hands not being rendered used by the water that was already in his hands? Alright? Or sometimes he says that I have water in my hands and before I can wash my face for the second time or any other lump, then water from my face drips into him. So will it not become used? <laughs> too much too early. <laughs> yes, sir. You would apply the same rule to the water 
So the point is now, will it become used, will it become, will it, will the water be problematic, yes or no? Why not? No. Exactly. So if you have water in your hand and a drop falls into it, would that drop have changed the color, taste, or smell of the water in your hand? Yes or no? No. One drop is not going to change anything. So the water in your hand is still fine. Khair. Yes, Abdullah. Purify. Yes. Yes. Then that is not Mahmoud Tamar. Mahmoud Tamar is only water which was used to remove Hadar. Technically, it shouldn't be a problem. Because the idea of refreshing your hudu, you're not removing any hadath. Um, I'll have to check it, but I, I can't see a problem with it. I can't see a problem with it. Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala alam. Khair. Now, the last discussion I wanted to have is that all of that generally applies to water, which is less than two kulas, which is approximately 200 liters. When you're dealing with water that has more than 200 kullas, more than two kullas, which is approximately 200 liters, then the rule changes. Because if once water reaches more than 200 liters, it develops a string. This is from the hadith of Rasul sallallahu alayhi wa It develops a string. And if najasa was to fall into it now, najasa that does not change its color, smell, or taste, then the strength of the water pushes the ruling of najasa away. You understand that? So, if you have a pool, which is much more than 200 liters, and someone was to urinate in that pool, because it's a question people ask. So, first of all, let's assume now, it's the salt water pool that used sea salt, and therefore the water is still considered. The water is good enough to use for hudu. But now somebody urinates in it. Can it still be used, yes or no? Whether you'd want to use it is a different question. <laughs> but the question is, can you use it? So it's more than 200 liters. Najasa fell into it. It has a strength to push the ruling of Najasa away. Because it's more than 200 liters, more than two kulas. On condition that there should be no change in the smell, taste, or smell. So even once water develops a strength to push the ruling of Najasa away, if large amounts of water change due to unnatural causes in its taste, color, smell, then also it cannot be used. Remember what I said, unnatural. Because sometimes water will change, but due to natural reasons. So you have uh, rainwater that uh, in, its, in its path of flowing, it picks up the color of sand, or the color of dust, or the color of leaves. And eventually it ends up into a natural pool that appears to be muddy or murky. Now all of that is natural change. So that's fine, that, that, that can be used. So if you go to a dam, or you go to a lake, or whatever the case may be, and you find that the water is slightly changed in its color, but due to natural reasons, that water may be used. 
but it would change its color on account of an unnatural reason. Sometimes it may be natural, but it was the intervention of a human being. So water, you have water over there, colorless, and then somebody takes the branches of leaves and trees and starts throwing it into it. It's natural, but because there was human intervention that came to throw those leaves into the water and then the color changed, it cannot be used. Um, I think that would basically wrap up our discussion around, around water. Yes, sir. Yeah, we actually, I actually attended a meeting in Joburg. Uh, what do they call it now? Restoration, water restoration. Uh, you know, as, as, as weird as it might sound, South Africa is listed as a country where there's a shortage of water. And uh, you know, it's amazing because government is looking into, government wants to get into serious, start building plants to restore water. By restore water, we're speaking about uh, sewerage water, we're speaking about toilet water, all those type of waters to be pumped into a plant and they want to purify that water again. And they basically want an intake from the Muslim community. Will the water be, um, first of all, pure to drink? And is it good enough for other usages that Muslims may require? So uh, it was actually a very interesting discussion. The process is very interesting, but uh, we're just looking at before I come that how South Africa becomes a, a, a country that that has a sh shortage of water is just remarkable. There is about, uh, if my memory serves me correctly, there is about a, of all the water in our country, and we're speaking about millions of liters, there's about a 30 to 40 percent wastage. 30 percent of our water is being wasted because of leaking taps. It's just hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of thousands of liters that are going to waste. If government can solve the problem of water wastage, there will be no need for you know, restoring water or recycling water, uh, a more common term that they would use. But nonetheless, for some reason, they're not focusing on how to uh, stop the wastage of water. They became focused now on restoring water or recycling water. So will it be okay, yes or no? What, would, what do you think? The pro yes. They've already started it. Um, the, I the think the now where they were handing out bottles of And they, there's a few plants already in the country, but they want to sort of, uh, they want to make it a more, a more common. The question is, is the water pure, yes or no? Can it be used, yes or no? So the amazing thing is that the, the, the chemicals that would be going into the water and the whole process of purifying the water, uh, once the water is tested, there would be no sign of any of the filth or any of the germs or anything in that water that once upon a time exists there. So it might have been Najis water once upon a time, it might have been mixed with urine, it might have, might be sewerage, it might be, might be. But once it goes through the process, the water is like clean, there's no dirt, no filth, no germs, nothing left in that water. But as far as, as we are concerned, is the water going to be pure, yes or no? Yes, that's all fine. But who said heating water removes Najasa? So the question when it comes to volume is that if it's water that exists in one plant, then it's a large volume of Najis water still. 
So what removes the hukum of Najasa from it? So that's a very tricky one for the jurist, because is it water pure, yes or no? But if you, if you look at the entire process, you don't sit with a problem. Because that water doesn't get sent to your home. Or it doesn't get sent to taps. That water is then, because many jurists are still going to consider that water to be impure. Even though it might be clear, and it might be safe to drink, they still consider it impure. But then what happens is that water from the plant gets pushed back into a reservoir, or back into a river. Right? And now when that water gets pushed back into a reservoir or a river, it's getting pushed back into a, such a large amount of water that that little nudges water, when it comes into such a large body of water, does it change? There's no change in color, smell, or taste, and therefore the water remains. The larger body of water would remain pure, intrinsically pure, and it has a power to purify. So once that happens, then the water can be used because now it gets mixed with a larger body of water. And on that step, all jurists are in agreement. And uh, yes, sir? Uh, yeah, I didn't actually want to come to that now <laughs> because I already told us it directly. <laughs> No, that was just a sample they had going with. So, in that case, they, when, before water gets pumped back into a reservoir, back into a river, then scholars are differing. Scholars, some would feel that it's uh, still impure, and others would feel that it is impure. So, when Ali drank the water, we say, according to those scholars, we say it's pure. <laughs> Yes, sir, Anis. Um, who said it's not original pure water? No, I'm just thinking of that masala where it must be that, that um, now in flux. Yeah. So, but you, as soon as you start adding something, and then it stays pure, but then it's not the same as that initial pure water. It's still, yes, it's still salt, it's still salt. But it's not the same. Who said it's not the same? I'm just remembering from the reading. Uh. Bring the text and we can revisit it. <laughs> now we did water at the madrasa also very recently. And the type of technical discussions we had at madrasa, I don't even want to get into it because you might just fall asleep. Let's see the text and we revisit it again, inshallah. inshallah. So that basically brings us to the end of water. Um, I, should, I should allow one to appreciate Sometimes when I, when I look at the landscape of our city, we just a community that we don't appreciate our landscape. The amount of rivers we have that is actually running between our areas and alongside our roads. Like who knows what rivers flow through Cape Town? 
I'll start the Black River wherever we are. Least Peak River. Salt River. <laughs> so it's amazing. And these rivers, once upon a time, they used to be very, very clean, very pure. And today, Allah knows best what's happening to our rivers. But uh, it gives you a very different appreciation for the landscape that you're living in. And it also tells you that, you know, you're not, you don't actually belong here. This used to be someone else's territory that we just sort of came to invade. May Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala grant us understanding. So that's the various types of waters. If you have a question of water, we can look into it next week. But for now, our time is nearly up already. And I still want to touch on the second text. So, Sheikh Abu Bakr bin Salim, can I get you? Sorry, Rida. Shah Bakr bin Salim last week he opened up in the introduction and we just commented on the first paragraph and later in the introduction he mentioned some beautiful things. So we say Bismillah Rahman Rahim, Alhamdulillah Rabbil Alameen, wa sallallahu ala Sayyidina Muhammadin wa ala alihi wa sahbihi wa barak wa sallam. He spoke about he spoke about some of what I've mentioned earlier today and that is Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala's favors upon us. So he said, Glory, glorified be Allah, the compassionate, I'm reading the second paragraph, the benefactor, the generous, the beneficent, the one who is renowned for gifts and goodness prior to the entire creation coming into existence. Even before there was creation, Allah was already known to be the manan, the one that constantly favors, he favored angels, he favored jinn, he, subhanahu wa ta'ala, his names and qualities existed with him even prior to the creation of anyone or anything. Glorified be he, how generous a creator is he. He created, he created us out of nothing, from a single soul, and from it created its mate, and from the pair of them scattered abroad many men and women. So Allah created human beings. He created paradise and fire, making paradise the abode of the believers, whilst making the fire the dwellings for the disbelievers. And then he prayed and he said, O oh Allah, we beseech you for Jannah, and we seek refuge in you from the fire, and from being denied the experience of the righteous. So, the, the second point, after he speaks about, uh, last week we spoke about Basira, we spoke about inner sight, and we spoke about the selected servants of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala, the Salihin and the awliya, he gets into a discussion that speaks about Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala being the one that <coughs> favors us. And he speaks about the existence of paradise, Jannah, and the existence of a Jahannam, which basically sums up our existence in this world. We are either destined to go to Jannah or we are destined to go to Jahannam. And you and I, Allah has created within us an ikhtiyar, the idea of taking a choice. So you and I, we decide what path we want to tread. Yes, there's a concept of qada and qadr. Have you heard the terms qada and qadr before? Together they are translated as the predestination of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. And the difference between the two is that the qada of Allah would be the predestination of Allah and the qadr is when, uh, in terms of how we see time, if we draw a timeline, then Allah's predestination coming into being that's the qadr of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala so Allah predestined 
that we're going to be gathering here this morning, that's qada. When we actually gather, that's Allah's qadr. When Allah's predestination comes into being. You know, so Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala predestined that I'm going to clap my hands. And when I clap my hands, that is the qadr of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala coming into being. So, Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala, we believe in the concept of predestination. And we know, as the Messenger Muhammad sallallahu alayhi wa sallam, he said in the hadith that when every one of you, when every one of you reached the age of four months within the wombs of your mothers, two angels came. And those angels had a discussion regarding you. Your time of death was recorded. And what your sustenance would be is recorded to the very last grain. Your time of death to the very last second was recorded when you are four months in the womb of your mother. And your sustenance was recorded to the very last grain. And the angels also wrote on that day, Ashaqiyun uh, am Sa'id. Whether he is from the wretched who will enter the fire of Jahannam, am Sa'id, those who are happy, felicity, and they will enter into, into paradise, into Jannah. So we understand and acknowledge that is the concept of predestination. But with predestination and with that belief, Allah has given us a choice. And I decided whether I'm going to come to the masjid this morning or not. And I decided whether I'm going to recite some Quran or whether I'm going to listen to music. Allah has given us that choice. Right? So I choose what path I want to tread. I choose whether I want to pave a way to Jannah or whether I want to pave a way to to Jahannam. Right, so this is the essence. Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala created us to test us. The reward is when I pass that test is a Jannah. The, the, the favors and the joy and the ecstasy which can, can, cannot be explained. And if I fail this test, I go to Jahannam. And the torment and the punishment and the severity cannot be explained and cannot be imagined. And that's the second thing which the author brings to our attention. And then he goes on to say that I be witness that there is no deity save Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala alone. He has no partners. To him belongs the worldly kingdom and to him all praise is due. He gives life and he grants death and he wields power over everything. I be witness that Muhammad sallallahu alayhi wa sallam is his slave and servant, his slave servant and his messenger the chosen one who is selected from the most noble of tribes, from amongst the Arabs and the non-Arabs, may the blessings of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala and abundant peace be upon him and upon his family and companions. And in this paragraph, he is telling you that the foundation of reaching Jannah is belief in Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala and his final messenger Muhammad sallallahu alayhi wa sallam. And he mentioned that the Prophet ﷺ was chosen from the best of tribes. And the Prophet himself mentioned this. He ﷺ said that, لَمْ يَفْتَرِقْ مِنْ شُعْبَتَيْنِ إِلَّا أَنَا بِخَيْرِهَا حَتَّى بُرُوزِيَا And I'm quoting a, a line from the uh, Mawlid of the Alami of Sayyid Habib Umar where he rephrased the hadith of the Prophet Muhammad ﷺ. The Prophet said from the time of our, of our father, Nabi Adam alayhi salatu wasalam never was there a split because Nabi Adam's children married each other and from them there was offspring and from them there was offspring 
and marriages took place. And every time a marriage takes place and a child comes, it's another split, and another split, and another split. And there are millions and millions of splits. And the Prophet said, never was there a split in the lineage from Nabi Adam والسلام, except that uh, I, was, I came from the best split. So whenever there was a generation of people, the forefathers of Rasul Sallallahu they were the best people living on earth at that time. And when there was another split, it was through the best child. And if there was another split, it was through the best child. And if there was a further split, the best child. And that best child would get married to the best woman and the best female. Until the Prophet Sallallahu came into being and came to existence. لم يفترق من شعبتين إلا أنا في خيرها was always in the best and the Prophet وسلم, he said I do not say this out of فخر I'm not saying this because I have pride and how could the messenger of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala have pride he said he's merely speaking about Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala's favor upon him so the essence of our belief is submitting over to Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala realizing the might and the power of Allah and following the selected messenger of Allah Habibuna wa Sayyiduna wa Mawlana Muhammad sallallahu ta'ala alayhi wa sallam he then gets into the next paragraph and he says that no may Allah grant us and you the success of the righteous you must take to obedience for verily it is the foundation of salvation and through its success uh, is attained in the gardens be firm in your abandonment of disobedience whether it be minor or major for verily it is the foundation of failure and through it loss is attained we ask forgiveness from Allah the generous. Allah the Most High says, What is he who has been a believer like unto him who has been wretched? They are not equal. So he speaks about turning to Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala in repentance. And turning to Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala in repentance is one of the most important aspects of reaching Jannah. It's one of the most important aspects of practices in reaching Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. So Imam al-Ghazali rahimahullah ta'ala. And Imam al-Ghazali was a, he was a, you know, I was going to use the term doctorate, but a doctorate means so little these days. He was a, a master in the field of, of spirituality, in the manners and ways in which a person purifies himself. And one of the very last books that he authored was a book called Minhajul Abidin. And in the Minhajul Abidin, he spoke about the full title, Minhaj means the methodology or the way of the Abideen, the true worshippers of Allah, ila jannati rabbil alameen, to the jannah of the Lord of the worlds, Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. So it takes you from the very beginning, how you start with absolutely nothing and how you reach Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. And he says it all starts, the, he, he breaks the entire book into aqabat, challenges or hurdles that a person will face in traveling to Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. And he says the first challenge that you need to overcome, is knowledge. You need to know Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. You need to know the rulings of Allah. You need to know how to be obedient. Ilm, it calls it uh, entire discussion to knowledge. Uh, acknowledging where am I and where is my Allah. How negligent I have been with regards to this Allah. You know, so that is that in itself is one of the greatest favors that Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala can grant any one of us when Allah places it in, within our hearts that reality is that I have, where am I? What have I been doing for my religion? That knowledge we are speaking about. And Imam Ghazali says, once you have that knowledge, then you realize now that you need to start worshipping this Allah. You realize now that you need to start being obedient to this Allah. You realize now that there's nothing else that matters. 
Because whatever I might have achieved in this world, whatever my job is, whatever my profession is, no matter how beautiful my home is, no matter what my bank balance looks like, if Allah is unhappy with me, then what is my state? What is my condition? Where am I going? I'm fooling myself. So the knowledge he speaks, Imam Ghazali speaks about, is a realization that a person feels in his heart. And when Allah places that realization in your heart, that's the start of it all. That's not, not the end, that's just the start. So Imam Ghazali says, now you feel you want to do obedience. You feel you want to draw close to Allah. But there's another challenge standing in your way, the second aqaba. And Imam Ghazali said, that is the aqaba of repenting to Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. And if you don't turn to Allah in a sincere repentance, how can you worship Him? How can you be obedient to Him? You know, and a sincere repentance is crying before Allah and begging Him to forgive sins that we have committed. Wrongdoings. And that's what the author is referring to over here when he said, you must take the obedience for verily it is the foundation of salvation. It's all about... You, be firm in your abandonment of disobedience. So the, the second challenge and the second hurdle that they travel to Allah must overcome is seeking forgiveness from Allah. Take the time out, be alone somewhere, sit on your mat and just start speaking to Allah, realizing that, you know, how much have I, how much have I drifted away from Allah, my Creator? How much times have I been disobedient to Him? How many times have I earned sins? And what is my state? And what is my, what is what's going to become of me? Can I can I can I imagine what Jahannam is going to be like? If if Allah Subhanahu wa Taala spoke about Jahannam and Allah Subhanahu wa Taala said Talmaha wujuhaumunnar, a a lamb, and the Prophet sallallahu alaihi wasallam, wahumfiya kalihun. The ayah said, when the companions want to know what does it mean that a person is kalih. Rasul sallallahu alayhi wa sallam, Talmah wujuhahum al-nar means the fire strikes their faces and then they would become kalih. So the Prophet explained and he said that if the fire was to strike the face of one of you, even for a split second, kalih means that he would be completely disformed. So Rasul sallallahu alayhi wa sallam said that tastarki shafatuhu sufla hatta tadrib surratahu that his lower lip would melt until it reaches his navel. And his upper lip would melt until it reaches the middle of his head. Completely disformed. If Jahannam was to strike you for a split second. So where are we going? And wow, what are we doing to save ourselves from such a Jahannam? So the next challenge is turning to Allah in repentance. And once you turn to Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala in repentance, it removes such a huge burden from your, from your shoulders. Because you, you've, 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 it's like, you know, I have, a, I have a quarrel with one of my brothers. So I feel uncomfortable. I can't go to certain places because I had a quarrel with him. I can't run into him. There's bad blood between me and him. But when I meet him and I sit down and I apologize and he apologizes and we hug, isn't it a relief? So right now, many, many people are shying away from Allah because there's just too many sins between them and Allah. They don't know how to turn to him. But his doors are open, 24-7. That never locks. He's always there to listen to the one who calls him. He's always there to forgive. Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala, no matter how much you wronged him, no matter how much you've done bad, no matter how much you broke his commandment, Allah is just waiting for you to turn to him. And when you turn to him, there's a sweetness in returning and repenting to Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala that cannot be explained. 
So the second challenge Imam Ghazali says is just repent and turn to Allah. And in the future you might slip up again. But return to Him all the time. Return to Him. May Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala allow us to return to Allah in a, in a, in a serious manner. In a manner in which our, we, we, we break down in front of Him because of the lives that we have been living. And that's the, the thing that the author is referring to over here. If you want to tread this path, last week we spoke about great things. We spoke about inner sight and we spoke about the awliya. But it all starts, it all starts here, repenting to Allah. So we should all constantly be seeking His forgiveness, subhanahu wa ta'ala. And therefore you would find that many of the mashayikh, when they enter you into a particular tariqah or a particular order, then a large part of the ceremony is tawbah. Seeking forgiveness from Allah for sins that you have committed. May Allah forgive us. May Allah overlook our shortcomings. Uh, the last part of this, I'm not going to read it, but the last part of the introduction so that we can start with the, uh, with the first chapter next week. He speaks about shunning the world and the dunya because we have become too attached to the dunya. So we speak a bit more about that when we meet next week, inshallah ta'ala. Um, I want to request from our brothers that as we move along with this particular text to try and be as, to try and be as practical as we possibly can and since the lesson of today was that second aqaba, the second challenge, we believe that Allah has placed that ilm, that recognition within our hearts that we need to turn to Him. But the next step is turning to Allah in repentance. So we're going to be praying our salat al-duha, whether it's two or four or six or eight raka'at. Uh, after your salat al-duha, take two minutes, take three minutes, take five minutes, and just start speaking to Allah. Allah is waiting for you and I to speak to Him. He said that in the Quran, وَإِذَا سَأَلَكَ عِبَادِي عَنِّي When my slaves say, speak to me. When you raise your hands and you start speaking to Allah, Allah says, I'm close. I'm there. I'm listening attentively to what you are saying. Feel the closeness of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. Feel close to Him. Because He is closer to us than our jugular vein. He is so close to us and still we, we don't feel Him. We're not cognizant of His presence. May Allah grant us to be present with Him. May Allah allow us to feel His presence. So, so as practical as we can, use a minute or two after your salat al-duha to turn to Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala in repentance. May Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala accept our gathering. وَبِهَذُ الْقَدْرِ نَكْتَفِي وَآخِرُ دَعْوَانَا أَنِ الْحَمْدُ لِلَّهِ رَبِّ الْعَالَمِينَ وَالسَّلَامُ عَلَيْكُمْ وَرَحْمَةُ اللَّهِ تَعَالَى وَبَرَكَاتُهُ